Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. First up today, uh, this I want to bring in uh, John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer. He's a we like to get him on every week or yeah, at least once a week to talk about some stuff to do with Hamilton and other things. John, how are you today? Doing well, Scott. Uh, John, let's start with this, and uh, uh, this just is getting to be a more a stranger and stranger story. We we had this, well, not we, there was a rally the other day in Toronto, uh, a group called Toronto Number no. 4, Toronto for Palestine, and it has apparently in the past on social media and things had some pretty outrageous messages on there and taken some positions. Well, Sarah Jama and Matt Green are both on stage. Now, Matt Green has come out, he's put out a statement saying, I didn't know that what this group stood for when I got there. I was just, you know, talking about a ceasefire. But Hamilton Center is becoming, I think, pretty well known around this province, if not around this country, and not in a glowing way with Jama and Matt Green. What, what's going on with Hamilton Center? Well, I, I, I think it's just a, a function of we're moving on. Uh, we, we had a generation of uh, NDP representation from that riding before. It was, uh, you know, the Dave Christoffersons, uh, the more middle-of-the-road kind of NDP, and uh, the generations move on, and now you get the current crop, and quite frankly, they're significantly more radical than uh, the NDP that uh, have traditionally got elected here in, in Hamilton. I don't get the sense, though, that nowadays, if you were to talk to people anywhere around this province who are not radical, I don't think you're going to say Hamilton Center and not have people go, oh. I mean, it, it, it's it's becoming almost a punchline. Well, it is, and, uh, you know, the... The whole Sarah Jama business is starting to, uh, you know, sort of become an old joke now. Um, she opened her office yesterday, and once again, she was caught on tape making statements that uh, really upset a number of people. If you look at social media today, uh, basically now saying that the rapes and the babies with their heads cut off, that that's, uh, she called it misinformation. Um, I don't think anybody has actually seen uh, photographic evidence of the baby situation, but certainly the rapes and the, just the utter brutality are are there, um, and she's blaming it on the Zionist lobby uh, pressuring. She said they were able to pressure an entire government operation to censure me indefinitely until I apologized. I think she's laying a little bit too much credit on herself there. I, I think, you know, I, I see her sort of flopping all over the place now. She sending off a letter to Ford on the weekend that was sort of a mixture of um, threatening him, but also uh, kind of cajoling him. And then I heard her musing about the possibility that she's willing to sit down with the NDP. Um, I don't think the NDP want her back, and I think she's starting to realize that without the NDP, she's probably going to be a one-term MPP. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree. We've said this before that I think if you are in Hamilton Center, and I think we've seen proof of this, that if you are wearing orange, you win. Period. End of story. And she won't be wearing orange next election. I mean, she might, but not officially with the NDP. And so whoever it is who's wearing that color is almost certainly going to win. And honestly, I think that even in an area that has, as you say, elected some more radical people recently, I do think there are going to be people in that area who are probably going to say, John, 
enough. Let, let, let's rein this back in a little bit. This is this is too much. Well, I heard an interesting comment uh, on one of the earlier shows uh, on CHML where they were saying, "What is the you know? Uh, there, there's all kinds of slaughters and and uh, all kinds of horrible treatment of people." Uh, the Uyghurs in China and some terrible massacres taking place in Africa. And, and yet the intellectual crowd seemed to be obsessed with Israel and Palestine. And, uh, you know, there's no denying that there's a, you know, some serious humanitarian situation going on there. But, uh, all these other situations, Syria, for instance, uh, just totally ignored. This uh, laser focus on the Israel-Palestine situation—it's—it's it's hard not to think that there isn't a significant element of anti-Semitism in there. John, you—you you mentioned this. Look, they're, they're right now, and I don't know how many people even know about this, but right now, Pakistan is deporting 1.7 million Afghans, which is—you know—these are people who. If you're going to talk about the Palestinians, it's not all that different a story. These are people without a home who are refugees. They are being pushed out of Pakistan into nowhere land. I don't hear anybody on university campuses or marching in streets or anywhere, as you point to, screaming about this. Where's the human rights outcry for this? Where are the calls that the Pakistani government are horrible people or are committing genocide or whatever? Where's any of this? It, you're right. I think it it points to only it, it points to a troubling conclusion. It does. And and I think we there's you know, we haven't talked about this. You and I haven't talked about this, but it's being talked about in other cities. I think we have to look at our local university. We have to say how does a young woman um, where do these views come from? Um, and, and I think you have to start looking at McMaster, uh, the certain courses that are taught there. If you go on the McMaster website and, and look at, and where you go up to the right hand corner, there's a search window and you type in the word colonial, you'll get 10 pages of responses, which are papers that have been written, um, comments and, uh, stuff coming out of some of their professors. And I think, you know, you look at a young woman like Sarah Jama, you, you, if you look back and, and where she first came into media prominence, she was, uh, it was, it started out with student activism. And I, I think we have to start asking ourselves, what, who's teaching this, this whole notion of persecution and uh, victimhood? And, and I came across something a little disturbing also. It turns out that they're teaching anti-colonial stuff at our Board of Education. So I fired a letter off to them, which hasn't been responded to yet, but I say, what grade are you starting to teach this stuff? And and when you're talking about anti-colonialism, what does that look like in the classroom? What are you actually telling the mm. kids? Yeah, great question. So great I'm question. hoping to hear back on that. Uh, I'd love to read that. John, a very interesting story at City Council yesterday. I think it was uh, planning... I could be wrong, but there was a long discussion and a heated at times discussion about plans to build a 45 story tower down on the waterfront and it passed. It got pushed through. It still has to pass council, but it, it got the enough votes to go ahead. But how come it is, and we've talked about this, I, I don't know if I've talked about it with you, but we've talked about it on the show before. How come it is that we say in this city, we're so desperately short on housing 
that we would want to take, you would think, any housing opportunity that we can get. And then when someone comes forward with a plan to build a 1,600-unit building, it's a fight to get it done. Well, it's uh, we've seen it for the last two years. Uh, we, we've talked about it before, the, the people living in single-family homes that had the Stop the Sprawl lawn signs. Um, uh, it's, it, it is, uh, I hate to use the word, but it is nimbyism at, at the end of the day. Um, I'm not crazy about seeing a 45-story tower down there, but I think the reality in Hamilton is that you're going to see more and more of these ultra-tall buildings because uh, now between our own council and, and Doug Ford's conversion, uh, we're, we're not going to expand the urban boundary. And uh, these houses have to go somewhere. And if if you're a builder, the economic climate has changed so badly that the only way to um, make them financially viable is to make them much higher. And uh, we're already, and even with all of that happening, we are seeing, I, I saw an article this week uh, saying that you know, some of these condo projects are just being mothballed. Um, uh, money's being paid back, uh, hopefully in most cases. But um, some of these condo projects that, that made sense at one and a half or two percent interest just don't make sense anymore. And they're starting to be shelved. So I think this housing crisis is unfortunately going to get worse uh, uh, before it gets better. And uh, th this 45 foot uh, 45 story uh, tower is just kind of a symbol of uh, a, a real malaise that's coming mm -hmm. to our housing situation. I, I just think you're so right though, that like we've been told that we're going to be getting, I think it's 230,000 new people by 2050. I think that was the, the number that we're going to add. And I just did really quickly while you were talking, did a little math here. And this building, this 45 story tower has 1600 units. And if you're going to put four people in every unit, and I don't think you will. I think there'll be a lot with two, but I'm giving the benefit of the doubt here. That's 36 of these buildings we're going to need in Hamilton, if, if period, without any other building because we're not expanding the urban boundary. I think if we turn around, whether it's 45 stories, knock it down to 20. Now you're up to 70 or 80 of these. I mean, we're going to have to start allowing buildings to be built in this city and some large buildings because there's no other option. There is no other option, um, and and I wasn't one that was totally sold on the idea of expanding the boundary because um, a lot of that could end up being monster houses, and and so I I, I kind of get that, but the way it is in Hamilton, uh, especially with this council, there's never a middle ground. Everything is absolute, so we either expand the boundary a lot or we we don't expand it at all. There's there's never any kind of middle ground politically. So we're in a situation where we are going to see so many high-rise buildings right across the city. And it's not just going to be in the lower city. In order for this to work, you're going to start seeing them in Ancaster. You're going to start seeing, you're already seeing them in Stony Creek. We're going to see high-rises in Waterdown. But uh, every it, time, John, but it seems as though, and I know every time is an exaggeration, is hyperbole, but it seems as though many times Anytime someone proposes a building of any size, immediately there's a fight against it. There is, but frankly, what's going to happen is just going to end up at LPAT. And, and we've already seen, even when it was 
back when it had one of its previous names, that body has tended to side with uh, developers. Uh, that's only going to intensify, I think, at this point. So people can talk about shadowing and, you know, uh, all these different issues that used to actually make sense in a planning discussion. Uh, these towers are just going to get built, period. There was one interesting, well, there was a lot of interesting comments, but one I want to ask you about, we have a minute left here. Um, in this discussion, uh, Cameron Kretsch, uh, Ward 2 counselor, says, who is the penthouse on the 45th story for? Uh, alluding to the fact that while these are not necessarily going to be low income or reasonably priced m affordable housing, is that something, I mean, we obviously need to build that stuff, but if someone's coming in and wants to sell a penthouse, do we really care who decides to buy the penthouse? Is that really a concern or do we say, no, that's in any city in the world, that's going to sell for a lot of money. So let's just get the thing built and let whoever worry about that. Well, implied in the question he's asking is, is the, what I think is a naive notion that the private sector is ever going to build affordable housing. You want affordable housing, it's government that does that. Private sector isn't going to do that. So anytime you see a private sector uh, development, it is by definition going to be not uh, affordable housing. It's going to be uh, something that appeals to people with the resources to buy it. That's just, uh, that's the way it is. It is, uh, it, it, it is an ongoing thing with the city and not, I'm not talking just with council, with the city that we seem to just not, every time someone wants to propose some sort of new housing thing, it seems that someone is fighting against it. Eventually, I think you're right, John, we got to run. I think you're right. Eventually they're just going to get done, but then everyone's going to be upset, but I don't know what the other alternative is because we have to find housing and I don't know where else we can do it. Uh, we got to, I, I wish we had a lot more time and next time we will. Uh, John Best, publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having you on, John. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Big news today. Saw this all of a sudden pop up. I mean, I work at the Spectator. I didn't know Matthew Van Donjen was working on the story. So I see this and I was shocked that the LRT path, the planned route for the LRT has changed. When the LRT was going to be coming along King Street and then get to Dundurn, it was going to go a little further. And then there was going to be a bridge across the Cathedral Park and hook up with Main Street there. Well, this now, the new proposal is that it will turn left onto Dundurn, right onto Main. That way we won't have to, or they won't have to build a train only bridge, which would be very expensive. Maybe some other changes as well that would alter, I guess, the cost. I guess that's what this is all about. I want to bring Abdul Sheikh. He is the director of the Hamilton LRT, LRT Project Office. He joins us now. Thank you for doing this today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for inviting. I've, well, I'm pleased to do this because, I, as I say, I was shocked. How long, as this, this has obviously been in the works for a long time, even though we just learned about it today. Yeah, no, thank you, Scott. The, the, this hall started when Main Street conversion triggered. And uh, we see that this is a great opportunity working together on Main Street conversion and LRT project itself. So this does provide a number of benefits, but I can go into the detail if you require. Please, yes. Yeah, so, okay, so one of them, clearly, it's been outlined, one of them is we don't have to build this train-only bridge, which would obviously be very costly. Why else would we do this? Yeah, so... Uh, as you know, like the, the city is working on Main Street conversion, and the most complex area, I would say, is around the 403 area. So with this LRT project, now we can actually look at the conversion of Main Street from 
paradise to Dundon, which was not initially planned, right? If you look at the you know current plan we have, that was the bottleneck we had, right? So through this LRT project, now the main street conversion could be done. That's one benefit. And then in terms of other, city has done, uh, num- city has implemented a number of new complete street guidelines. So with this project, uh, going going LRT on Bain and Dundon, we can include we can implement a complete street guideline, which basically be providing more pedestrian and cycling opportunity along the LRT route. And in terms of uh, you know, there are some complex intersections we have where are continu- there are continuously safety issues like King and Dundon and Main and Dundon. Now, through this project, we can look at how we can permanently fix those intersections for mm. more safer for pedestrian, cyclists, and transit riders. And in, in addition, when the LRT project is going along the roadway system, there will be infrastructure renewal required. So with this project, uh, with LRT project, we will be able to to renew some of the old infrastructure which are located on Main and Dunder streets. Okay, that's great information. I want to go through a few of those things that you just pointed to specifically. Um, Let us start coming down Dundurn. So we're coming along King Street. Now it's going to turn left onto Dundurn. So basically passing in front of the Fortino's Plaza there, the Dundurn Plaza, and then turning right. Would that not essential, would that allow for any traffic on Dundurn? Or would that use up Dunder? Would that stretch between Maine and King now be LRT and pedestrian only? No, Scott. Like this will still be all modes of transportation. Now with this LRT, we will be including the cycling uh, infrastructure as well. So it will be that stretch of Dundon between King and Maine will still accommodate vehicular, cyclists, pedestrian, and. LRT as well. Okay. Okay. Then when you get to Main Street and turn right, this is one of the one of the things that immediately I thought of here is there is an exit to come off the highway on the one side from Maine when you're coming from Toronto. Uh, it, it's there's also uh, coming from the other side that's been coming the other way. So you've got two entrances right around just before they're coming off the highway and pouring onto Main Street. And if you now put two LRT lanes, because it'll probably take two lanes to do that, is this not going to create a huge bottleneck of traffic right there with all the cars coming off the highway, plus people coming from Westdale now, plus the LRT, plus pedestrian, plus bike lanes? Yeah, no, so we will be actually looking at more closely on this whole traffic-related issues, right? So, and, uh, you know, we have to further nail down with metro links all the details. In our opinion, uh, you know, this bridge across the 403 will need to be widened, right, to accommodate LRT infrastructure. And then we can also improve some of the interchanges we have, right? So currently there's a slip-off. We can make a T-intersection and those kind of things. So so overall traffic needs to be re-looked at uh, with inclusion of LRT uh, at this location, so which could be a widening of a lane or something like that, and then realigning some of the interchanges to better suit with our geometry with LRT project. But we could not, is there room to widen Main Street prior to Dundurn Street? Because you've got the gas station on one side, you've got uh, where the old spectator building was on the other. Is there room to widen it possibly there? Uh, so, Scott, like these are the details which we have to sort it okay. out. Uh, we have the concept alignment lab, uh, right now, and then we have to work closely with Metrolink for their plan is in terms of the property impact, in terms of widening. So these are 
things which we still need to sort it out with Metrolink. The uh, one of the other things that this would allow for, I understand, is there's going to be a train depot or repair facility or whatever that will be that th- this would allow for the trains then to go down Frid Street, right, to get to where the trains would be kept. Exactly. Yeah. So the proposed OMFF we call Operation Maintenance and Storage Facility, which is at Chatham and Longwood. Uh, that uh, it, the previous alignment was going through the Longwood from Maine. Now it will go through Fred Street. Okay. Okay. Almost a facility. Um, okay, a couple other things, and this is a really uh, technical thing, I suppose, although I think a lot of people, when they look at the new map, are going to ask this question. I have no idea the answer to this. If you're driving along, if you're LRTing along King Street and you get to Dundurn, are these trains nimble enough to make that tight a turn and then to make that tight a right turn again onto Main Street? Or, or how, does, how is that going to work? Because a train can't turn quite as tightly as a car. No, like these things already been sorted out, uh, Scott, uh, that there are minimum radius and uh, Metrolink has confirmed that they are able to make those turns like 90 degree. And it's not just this project. I have seen other projects where 90 degree bands are allowed and, uh, and yeah, this is a workable solution. Where are we now? And I don't know if you have an answer to this. We, we've been, um, the last number we heard was, uh, I don't know how long ago now, a year or two years with the, the LRT was going to be at $3.4 billion to build. Uh, there's been an awful lot of inflation and cost increases. Do we know yet whether $3.4 billion can still do the job, or are we expecting a new estimate sometime soon? It's kind of like I represent City of Hamilton, and uh, this project is being led by Metrolink. So at this stage, I don't have information on that part. Uh, so we probably have to direct those inquiries to Metrolink since they are responsible for capital delivery of this project. Okay, and, and but do we know when, if they were going to, is there a time frame that, because we're also waiting for what the operating cost would potentially be, do we have any kind of time frame for any of these costs to be released that you're aware of? Uh, unfortunately, I don't have a Scott, uh, but uh, we can get back to you on that part. Okay. Uh, it is, uh, it is an interesting one for sure. Uh, Abdul Sheikh, Director of the Hamilton LRT Project Office, thank you for doing this today. I appreciate you coming on and explaining this. Thank you very much, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Remember, this is Grey Cup Week, and we are just a few days away from Grey Cup, a Grey Cup game between Montreal and Winnipeg. And uh, this one, uh, I'm kind of shocked by this that in all the years that the CFL has existed, this is the first time these two teams have ever met for a great cup. Let me bring in Josh Smith, reporter for Three Down Nation. Josh, how are you today? I'm great to be here. I know the answer to your trivia questions. Okay, so... I will not say, I will not say anything, don't but say I do it. know the answer. Don't say it, and before you hang up, I will let you tell Ben, ben off the air, and we'll see if you can get it right. But okay, okay. So, so we're off to a good start. If you know the answer, and I think it's a really hard one, if you know it, you're doing well. Uh, so, yeah, I am amazed that in all the years of the CFL, these two teams somehow have never met in a Grey Cup. Yeah, every year for Three Down Nation, I put together my Grey Cup matchup rankings, and whenever Montreal and Winnipeg are in there, and I've been doing that now for five, six years, it always still shocks me. It's like they've never, like how have Winnipeg and Montreal and I know the the Alouettes for about a decade there were were gone sure. in the 80s and early 90s, but it's still s- kind of surprising that uh, 
this is the first time like everyone who's going to be at that game, everyone's going to be watching on television. You're literally witnessing history. So that's uh, I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, it was it surprises me all the time as well. And again, we're not talking the NFL where there's 30 teams. We're talking a league that often had eight or now nine. And I guess mostly, well, it's been eight or nine because Montreal was out for a while, but also it was down to eight when Ottawa was out and Montreal was in. Like the numbers, it, it just seems ridiculous that this has never happened before. It's almost implausible. It, it does. And then if you look at the history of the league, you look at when Winnipeg was dominant, when Montreal was dominant, and they never co- coincided. Winnipeg was great in the 50s and 60s. Montreal started coming up in the 1970s when Winnipeg was less than. Then it was the 1990s, late 1990s into the 2000s where Montreal with Anthony Calvillo and Don Matthews and all those guys, Mark, Mark Tressman later on, they were the ones that were dominating the league, whereas Winnipeg was the team that was finishing in last place. So it's just an interesting coalescence here where we get an Alouettes team that is peaking at the right time. They've won a bunch of games in a row going into this, coming off a massive victory over the heavily, heavily favored Argos last Saturday and Winnipeg looking to essentially establish the next great dynasty in the Canadian football league by going for their third straight great cup being in their fourth straight great cup, but going for their third win in those four years. So it's a very intriguing matchup, which again is kind of ironic because Winnipeg for a long time was the Hamilton Ticats. They could not win for the longest time. They finally get back to winning and now you can't stop winning. Yeah, it was 29 years for the Bombers before they finally, from 1990 to 2019, and of course, most of the people listening to your show know who they defeated in that 2019 Grey Cup, so we don't have to open that. (laughs) Probably still fresh wound for a lot of people out there, especially when they came back in 2021, and again, we all know what happened there, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a... It's been a ride for the Bombers. They're a veteran-heavy team. They're led by a two-time most outstanding player in Zach Caleros, who a lot of people around these parts know as well. So there's a lot of Hamilton ties. If if people are really looking to kind of sink their teeth into it with this Bombers team, Michael Shea's the head coach, obviously. You know, love-hate relationship with him. Spent time with the Ticats, left for the Argos, came back, left for the Argos again. So he's not the most popular player here. Kyle Walters, our general manager, played for the Tiger Cats Mm -hmm. in the 90s, was on that team that won the Grey Cup in 1999. So there's some familial, familiar connections there with the Winnipeg team that's now going for a third title in four years, which is impressive in its own right. There's no, uh, and we've talked about this on this show many times, Mike O'Shea remains an unpopular man around these parts and probably always will until the day he dies. And then probably will just be a memory of an unpopular man when he's gone around here. But Zach Caleros, it's a, it's a strange thing. I don't get the sense, even though he's a former Thai cat, I don't get the sense that anybody around here doesn't like Zach Caleros. He has somehow managed to go and everybody grudgingly, even if not enthusiastically goes, yeah, I'm okay with Jack. I'm okay with Zach. He, he's pretty good. Yeah, I think the difference is O'Shea kind of let like spurned oh, the yeah. team. Oh, like yeah. they traded for him at one point and then he played a year and it was like, I don't want this and went back. Like and he went to Toronto, whereas Zach, he he was here and then kind of fell out of favor with the coaching staff. June Jones takes over for Ken Austin. He wasn't playing up to his standards, bounces hurt, around the league quite a bit. Yeah, and hurt a lot. I mean he had concussions and yep. he blew out his knee. And I mean, do you do you look at the Ticat? This is one move that I look at the Ticat's decision, and a lot of people say, Why in the world would you let the guy go? Look how well he's played. This is one that I don't know that in retrospect we can look back and say anybody would have done anything different. Because he was a highly paid guy, he was looking for more money. I don't think you can in retro you can retroactively go back and say the Ticats blew this. Caleros just turned his career around. 
Yeah, and I think the proof is in the pudding there because Hamilton wasn't the last team. It, it, it's not like he left Hamilton and went to Winnipeg. They traded him to Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan didn't get out of him what they thought. They trade him to Toronto. He never sees the field with the Argos in a second stint with them. They ship him to Winnipeg at the trade deadline in 2019. So there's a lot of teams that have had their hand on Zach since he left Hamilton that didn't see in him what he became. And then, of course, he stayed. You mentioned the health thing. He stayed healthy in Winnipeg. He's had, He had two... He leads them to the Grey Cup on that brief run he had in 2019. Then he comes back in 2021, wins most outstanding player, wins it again in 2022. He stays healthy and he becomes the quarterback that we thought he would be when he was with the Tiger Cats. So, Mm. no, I'm in complete agreement with you there, Scott. There's no way you can look at the Tiger Cats move to go away from Zach at the time back in 2017, 2018, and think it was a bad decision. It looked bad in hindsight, but hindsight's always 2020. Well, so yeah, so he was probably going to be the most outstanding player the year that he was with Hamilton. I, I think they were still playing in Guelph that year, if I remember, when he blew out his knee on a, not, not even a contact play. He just went down and his knee was gone. And then you're right. He goes to Saskatchewan and people will remember that. I think it was, it was certainly the first game of the year. It might've been the first series when Simone Lawrence hit him late and low and gave him a concussion. And that, you know, there was Simone got suspended for that, as I recall, but like he, when Zach Calero has been able to stay healthy, that's the one thing. He's been great, and he you're right. He's been healthy in Winnipeg for the most part, and he's played like a star. Yeah, the knee injury he suffered was the sliding doors moment for me. I still, to this day, will pound on the desk and say, if he stays healthy that year, not only does he win mo- his first most outstanding player that year, the Hamilton Tiger Cats roll to a great cup title. If you look back on that season, they were, they were putting up 50 points a week, it seemed. I think they had a run of like three or four straight weeks where they put up between 45 and 50 points. They were running over everybody. But the thing, coaches have said it a lot, you can't make the club from the tub is a popular phrase. Hmm. And if you're hurt all the time, that's at, at some point someone comes and just takes your job. And that's what happened here. That's what ha- And you're right about it was the hit here in Hamilton. Simone Lawrence, it was the first series. It was, I think, two or three plays into the game, knocked him out. That led to Cody Fajardo's rise into Saskatchewan, who's now – ironically enough, the quarterback for the Montreal Alouette. So you have Caleros, who was facing off against the guy who was replaced, who the Riders then ran out of town because he wasn't good enough for them. So that's an intriguing storyline there as well. There's there's plenty of those littering this matchup on Sunday. So the other sideline, you've got Jason Moss, who people will remember came here. He was going to be the, he had been a star backup in, in backup opportunities in Edmonton, gets traded here, is going to be the star in Hamilton. And when he arrives, I think that he got here, but all the tendons in his shoulder got left behind in Edmonton. Because if people remember, when he got here, he could not throw a pass 10 yards down the field. Something was wrong with him. I'm always amazed, though, that even we, pe- sports fans tend not to be all that forgiving to players that they had high expectations for, regardless of whether it's injuries or not. Jason Moss never lived up to what he was expected to be here in Hamilton. Yet again, I don't know that there's any hard feelings towards the guy here. No, it's funny you bring it up. I actually spoke with Coach Moss today and brought that very up to him. I was like, you're back in Hamilton. I know it seems like a lifetime ago. You were the quarterback here. It didn't go well. Is that something that's on your mind? Of course, as as every coach would, he downplayed it, says that's not what he's thinking of. He's focused on the team now. But it, it is kind of interesting, all the Hamilton connections in this one. And I think you're right. I don't think there's a lot of misplaced anger at Jason Moss for how things went down in Hamilton. That era there, that the early Bob Young era of ownership is kind of that 
dark period for this team. I think it's they couldn't get out of their own way. They tried quarterback after quarterback. They finally write the ship in uh, 2009. That brings in sort of this era here where save for an actual championship has been pretty successful for the Tiger Cats. But I think he's just kind of Moss's legacy with Hamilton is just kind of a little bit forgotten because he didn't play up to his expectations. He was injured, but the team was also just absolutely horrendous at that time frame. And I think most high cat fans would just rather forget that it even happened. Well, and then they replaced him. If memory serves, it was the huge secret signing, the airport signing of Casey printers that somehow they redirected Casey printers from flying somewhere else. And they got him to Hamilton and he came here and then, I think Jason Moss escapes a lot of scrutiny from his time in Hamilton because Casey Printers came in with massively even bigger expectations and he pooped out even bigger. Yeah, I think that does really help Jason Moss's, the thinking of Jason Moss in Hamilton because Printers did come here and just it made Jason Moss's tenure look successful in comparison. <laughs> it, was, it was a bad time to be a Tiger Cats fan at that point. Okay, so the thing that we look at, I think, with, with Jason Moss and with his team, and we've got this game coming up on Sunday, is uh, you're right. When, when you started out by saying they beat the heavily favored Toronto Argonauts in Toronto, I don't think, I don't think there was anybody that saw that one coming. And nine turnovers, now some of those are just on Toronto for just lousy play, but Montreal gets credit and should get credit for the defense they played that led to a number of those turnovers. You can't blame all of it on Toronto. Some of it was good defense by Montreal. Can they possibly replicate that or rise to that level again? Because most people are saying they're going to have to do something pretty, not nine turnovers, but they're going to have to play like that if they want to have a chance against Winnipeg on Sunday. I'm of two minds of this because I keep, I think I keep talking myself into thinking Montreal can win this game because it's new and it's more interesting. I think than Oh, Winnipeg shows up, Winnipeg dominates, Winnipeg wins. It's kind of what they do. But I think back to 2019 and going into that game, it was, everyone was saying that the Ticats are going to walk all over Winnipeg. They had beaten them by 20 something points just a few weeks prior. They had steamrolled everyone that year. It was, it was going to be the coronation The the curse was finally going to be lifted. They're going to get to do it against the bombers. And then the game started. And before halftime, I don't know about everyone listening, but I remember watching it going, this is over and Winnipeg's going to win this game. And, and they've obviously gone on this run since then. Montreal has a very similar feel to that. People are kind of, counting them out they put they play really really good defense as you mentioned they forced nine turnovers against toronto doing that against chad kelly who's the presumptive going to win most outstanding player on thursday more than likely to look make him look like a, a shell of himself was impressive i do think that that montreal has the horses to get this done I think their defensive line is excellent. They create turnovers. And the big thing with them is they do something with those turnovers. It's not just, oh, you get a fumble recovery and the offense goes back on the field. They score when they get the ball. They score two defensive touchdowns and a special teams touchdown against the Argos. So while the offense might not be up to snuff when it comes, if this becomes a shootout offensively, I think Montreal doesn't have a chance. But if they can get some stops and get some turnovers defensively, this is going to end up being a close game. And then you get to that. It's a championship game everyone's tight. It's close in the fourth quarter. And that's when some of the bigger stars come out to play. And I think on the defensive side, the owls have just as many horses to match what Winnipeg can do. So 
maybe I'm hedging my bets here and maybe I'm just kind of, you know, going with the underdog because the underdog story is more interesting. But I do think that the Alouettes can have a game plan here that keeps them in this game and allows them to pull it out late. Who, who's going to be not the fa- I don't mean the betting favorite of people are betting. I mean, who's going to be the sentimental favorite from people in the crowd? You know what's funny? I was actually asking people. Uh, it was media day today at the convention center downtown in Hamilton. And I was actually asked. I asked the Bombers this. I asked the Alouettes this. Because the last time Winnipeg was here, they played this game. They were playing against the Tiger Cats. Obviously, the crowd was really pro, was really pro uh, Hamilton in that one. The Bombers said that their fans tend to travel. They do think that there's going to be some Ticat fans that will root for them because they don't want to see Montreal win. Because Montreal also has, it's not as long as Hamilton's, but they also have a great cup drought. They don't want to see him break it. Then the Alouettes, conversely, were like, no, we think they're going to cheer for us. It's like kind of an Eastern represent thing. So both sides think that they're going to be the the more cheered side. I don't really know where this is going to land. I haven't really got a sense from Ticat fans where they're kind of going with this one. Because I think the crowd is going to be, it's obviously going to be a majority of Hamiltonians there. Bought their tickets way early in the season, hoping the Ticats would be in it. I think I'm getting a like slightly more to Montreal just because we've seen when again it's the underdog story like I just said we've seen Winnipeg win a bunch I don't necessarily know if people want to see it again so I think maybe Montreal could have the advantage there but I think it'll be a lot closer to 50-50 than we've seen in the past I I would think you're right well, what ha- what has been the sentiment and I know you've been down at the not around fans necessarily a lot of the time but last time two years ago when the Grey Cup was here it was the Tie Cats in the game and that made it. There, there was a buzz because of that, because the home team was playing, and frankly, Hamilton had a chance and probably should have won their first Grey Cup at home since 1972. It was a big, big deal. Is it a different feel now that the home team is not in it? A little bit, but I do think because this Grey Cup festival is a little more of an actual Grey Cup festival. If you remember 2021, we were kind of coming off COVID. There was still not necessarily restrictions in place, but it didn't feel like a full event. And even commissioner Randy Ambrosi during a state of the league address said that the league had to actually taken the gray cup back from the tie cats and running it and kind of ran it themselves. And that's why it's back here. They're going to, they're giving the Hamilton crew a chance to do the full gray cup. I still think there's some excitement because there's always an excitement around a championship game, but it's definitely not as fervent as it may have been two years ago when the tie cats are in it, but there's still, still definitely a palpability in the air of people being excited. That the gray cups here, you're going to see fans more as the week goes on Thursday is kind of the big day where everyone kind of really starts to descend on the city. I think then if you go downtown, you'll see a lot more of sort of the pageantry that we associate with Grey Cup. But it's it's been interesting so far. I'm curious to see how it's going to be later in the week if that'll ramp things up a little bit. Well, the one thing that it might do is if you don't have a diehard vested rooting interest where it really matters to you, you may just be more fun. Yeah, you, you may, I mean, you may be able to breathe more for some people beforehand, because I'm sure that before the last Grey Cup, it, it was, it really mattered to Ticat fans. And so there was a, a tension before the game. Now it's just a party. Yeah, I've actually heard that. I've heard a lot of fans say like, if my team's, I'd rather my team not be in it in some respects, because then you spend the week kind of stressing about it instead of having fun. And anyone out there who's never been to a Grey Cup festival, like you can have the time of your life there. There's, I don't know of anyone who's said, they left a, uh, one of the parties or anything that they're going to be doing downtown at any other city and said, oh, that was a bore. It's always a great time. And, and a lot of fans do have that feeling of, I don't have to worry all week, 
but there's also the fun of your team being in it too. So I don't, I take that at face value, but at the end of the day, I'm like, yeah, but you probably still want to see your team win a championship. Right. But yeah, without having a vested interest in the outcome, I think you can have a little bit more fun, especially on game day. All right, Josh, we got to run, but before I let you go, and I know you're going to give Ben the quiz answer after when we get rid of you here, but I'm going to give you a quiz question. Which of the two teams that is in the gray cup, the Alouettes or the Blue Bombers, which is named, which is, which is name is named after a military jet? Oh, see, that's a tough one because people think it's the Bombers, but they're actually named after a boxer. Joe Lewis. The Alouettes. Joe Lewis. Yes. Yeah. The Alouettes. So Joe Lewis, the, a writer for the Winnipeg, uh, newspaper, uh, named, and I'm trying to find his name here. Um, Winnipeg Tribune writer referred to them. Joe Lewis was the Brown Bomber in a game. Yep. He called them the Blue Bombers and that stuck as their team name because they had been the Winnipeg Football Club. The Montreal Alouettes in 1942 in England, the 425 Squadron was the first ever French-Canadian unit as well as the fifth bombing unit in the RCAF. The squad was nicknamed the Alouettes and um, Lou Heyman who was the founder and first coach of the Alouettes was a, is not just a hall of famer. He was at one time an officer in the RCAF. It's the Alouettes who are named after a jet, not the bombers. How about that? Pretty crazy. Little bit of absolutely unimportant trivia for for people as they head into the game. And maybe who knows, try and trick your friends with that one tomorrow. Cause who wouldn't have thought the blue bombers were named after bombers. Anyway, uh, Josh Smith, you can see his stuff on three down nation. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today, Josh. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks a lot for having me on Scott. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. There is one thing I think that if you are someone who's involved with the entertainment business, especially the movie business over the last, I don't know, 10 years, maybe not that long, maybe longer is that superhero movies, as a rule, you pop them out, you put some special effects in them, and they sell. They've done billions of billions of dollars in business. They're not necessarily taxing your brain, but they work. Well, they did work, except Disney now has back-to-back problems. The latest one being that uh, the new movie called The Marvels, which cost 200 million to make and apparently another 100 million to market open to $46 million only. And it's now being described as just a gigantic bomb. This isn't the first either lately. Is this a sign that superheroes are, that we're done with them? Is this a sign people are demanding better entertainment than just pumping out franchise after franchise entry that no one puts much thought into. What is this telling us? Well, I know someone who can tell us this. I know he will have an opinion because he is absolutely one of the most intelligent movie pop culture voices out there. His name is Robert Thompson. It's been a long time since we had him on. Robert Thompson, the director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Robert, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. It has been way too long. So, uh, what is the story behind this? Have we, is this just a bad movie and it's just blowing up or are people's tastes changing or is there something else going on here? 
Yeah, okay. Well, there's a couple of things you said right there in the intro. The idea that we used to just watch superhero movies, we didn't have to think about them. Maybe one of the problems is with a lot of these superhero movies, we do have to think about them. They require homework. uh, uh, These universes are getting so complex that I think (laughs) some people are being, that aren't big Marvel fans, uh, are being a little intimidated by the complexity of how these things uh, all work uh, out in together and all that kind of uh, thing. We'll get to that in a second. The other thing of uh, are we getting better tastes uh, and we're not just watching out pumped-out franchises, the superhero movies, I think in comic book movies in general, we used to think of like we used to think of comic books as uh, something for kids, something you did when you were supposed to be doing your homework. But that's really changed over the past uh, uh, several decades. Marvel has done a lot of stuff that really isn't just pumped out uh, uh, formula. I'm thinking of WandaVision, uh, which was a really complex, uh, interesting series. Uh, Black Panther, of course, is always the first people um, people mention. So there's all of that to uh, consider. Marvel's, I think, was not a terrible uh, movie, although one of the headlines said it's the 33rd movie that uh, you can see again kind of thing, referring to the formulaic stuff you were talking about. Uh, Some of the best reviews for the Marvels, the best thing they had to say about it was that it was only 105 minutes long, which these (laughs) days is actually (laughs) saying something, uh, you know, a movie that's uh, uh, short and consumable. Um, So I don't think people are done with superhero movies. We've been telling superhero stories of one kind or another for a long, long, long time. Achilles in the Iliad, I suppose, was a superhero of sorts. Certainly the gods that were supporting him or uh, going against him were. So I don't think they're going to go away. But I think the saturation, the fatigue that so many people, including myself, have been incorrectly predicting, maybe we are now, uh, those predictions are now uh, uh, coming true, including the head of Disney, who said essentially that in the effort to uh, get stuff to fill Disney Plus, to uh, keep people coming, uh, that they may have overdone it. And I think there's only going to be one Marvel movie uh, next year, Deadpool 3, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and, and okay, so Deadpool, the Deadpool series is smart writing, though. I mean, it's clever and it's smart writing and it seems so often. Now, I'm going to admit right off the bat, I've not seen many or most of these superhero movies. I've seen some bits, and but oftentimes it just seems almost like the people behind it feel as long as we put a superhero and have cool special effects, we almost don't even need to worry about the story. People will come. And and I just wonder if that is something they have to completely rethink. Well, yes, and I think you're right. Some of them have been, uh, I mean, and that's certainly not all. There have been a number of super movies, of uh, superhero movies and TV shows that I've talked about before that have been really interesting, thought-provoking, and if you'd have told me when I was a kid that a superhero comic book-based movie was going to be this complex and interesting, I would have said that's never going to uh, happen. But you're right, there have been, and oftentimes they have been the ones that have flopped, uh, have been a little uh, messed up. 
Um, and Disney, especially, I think, is is rethinking this. The the amount of this stuff they churn out, which they have been doing, what uh, there were thirty three movies alone. Forget the TV series. There were thirty three movies in the last fifteen years, um, and they generated thirty billion dollars, which is one of the reasons they 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 kept churning them out. So I think that is one of the things they're going to um, uh, they're going to be rethinking. I think they're also rethinking. The idea of the complexity, the need to know all of this backstory, uh, I think to some extent some of these movies need to be, ironically enough, simplified rather than uh, 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 made, um, um, made more complex. Uh, there's a sense that what used to be, I, I think back, remember the first Superman with Christopher Reeve? Yes. You didn't have to know anything about any universe in there. If you'd never heard of Krypton, they told you. If you'd never heard of Who Raised Clark Kent, they told you. I mean, it was a, uh, I think, a well-done movie. I think it was fun for what it was. Uh, but And, and it, was, uh, it was simple. Uh, there are Marvel movies now that you, you practically have to bring a notebook along for your, uh, <laughs> your annotations. There's another thing that some people, and you can find this online from actually a lot of people. It's not of some people. A lot of people saying this may be a situation where there's something about having female leads in this. Now, you know, we get into some really controversial and dicey area here, but you've got two or three female leads in this one. And what they're saying is, Like you can make a great movie that has female leads. Bridesmaids still holds up as one of the great comedy movies of the last, I don't know, 10 or 20 years, female leads, but it was original. It was unique. It wasn't necessarily comparable. You're not going to hold it up against something else. Is there anything to the fact that if you are trying, if you're going sort of low brow and just saying, we're going to make this work because we're just going to shove some women in there and that'll sell it. It's different because it's women. That seems like it's not even fair to the women who are either buying the tickets or acting in the movie. Yeah, well, it, it is. It's a, a complicated uh, uh, question. I mean, I hope, and there have been a number of uh, superhero movies with female leads that have done less well than they were expected to, or that uh, other super movies, superhero movies, have done. I hope it's not because people are somehow choosing not to go to them because they're uh, female leads. I certainly don't think it's because uh, female leads uh, are not compatible with that genre, because I think they're very uh, compatible um, uh, uh, with it. Uh, but they're, 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 people have, of course, been uh, talking about that. But then I think one of the – I brought up WandaVision before. That had a female lead. Her name was in the uh, title, and I think that was one of some of the best work Marvel has done in this whole uh, MCU uh, period. Um, I, I think there's uh, the Marvels specifically, which uh, now they thought it was going to be the second uh, lowest performing opening weekend in Marvel history. Uh, now it's turned out to be the first, uh, $47 million. Uh, before that, I think the lowest was, uh, what, $55 million with The Incredible Hulk, and that was way back in 2008. Um I think it's a combination of the fatigue and saturation that we were talking about before. There just is has been so much of this stuff in so many different forms. 
it certainly didn't help that uh, the uh, actor strike didn't allow anybody to promote uh, this until Wednesday when it ended. So they had exactly mm. what one twenty four hours that to doesn't help it before the uh, previews. That certainly um, uh, didn't help. Uh, uh, didn't help it either. Uh, but I do think, and I think you pointed this out too, that the the days when you could almost guarantee success by simply calling it a Marvel movie, uh, that those those days are clearly over, and I'm not sure that they weren't over a long time ago. Because well, we had some Marvel flops back, uh, you know, back in 2008, 2015. Sure, and and, and to the thing about the the female leads, uh, I agree with it. I hope that's not the reason. But it seems as though if the cop, not the cop out, if the, if the thing from the studio is it'll work because we now have females in the lead, if that's your selling feature, as opposed to just great material, if it's great material, I think it's always going to work. If you're simply saying people will buy it because it's women now in the lead instead of men, as I say, I think that's setting up everybody involved and all the audience for failure. That would also be, though, counterintuitive, given some of the track record of uh, uh, the female lead comic uh, movies. It, 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 it wouldn't seem that they would be... Uh, I would be more worried that network executives were going to point to a female lead film that didn't do well and, and say, look, that didn't do well, they don't sell, we're not going to do them anymore. That's the way network executives on TV operated for decades, and uh, uh, Hollywood executives uh, as well, which I think is why it took so long to uh, uh, to get female leads, older female leads, all of that kind of thing to finally uh, uh, you know start becoming more uh, commonplace. So I'm not sure they would. I mean, I guess there was the idea to some extent way back in the 1970s. We had uh, Charlie's Angels, but that was a huge, huge hit. Um, we had uh, uh, the Bionic Woman, a spinoff from yes. uh, Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, we had Wonder Woman, uh, Isis. That title seems weird today, but that was a Saturday morning <laughs> yes. uh, thing. There was a big flood of female lead superheroes. Police woman. She wasn't a superhero, but uh, uh, same type of thing. And I think there, there might have been some of that network cynicism that, uh, y- you know, all we have to do is put beautiful women in these roles and they will be successful. And a lot of late 70s television was like that. Love Boat, Fantasy Island, uh, uh, Three's Company, on and on and on. Um, there was I a template. Probably those decisions now, though, are a lot more complicated. Yeah, there was definitely a template. And back then it definitely worked. And yes, I, I've always wondered. We've got to run, Robert, unfortunately. But I've all, not always. I've often wondered when the name Charlie's Angels has come up. And I'm not talking about the movies. I'm talking about the original TV show with Farrah Fawcett and Jacqueline Smith and uh, Kate's, Kate, um, what was her name? Kate, uh, Kate Jackson. Jackson, thank you. If those had been... Not to put too fine a point on it, but if those had been three women who were not as attractive as those three, would anybody have watched that show? I'm well, not uh, sure. Uh, but I can answer the question by saying they couldn't have because the network executives back then would never have put it on. For, for sure. All three of those women, by the way, had uh, uh, done their early work as shampoo models. Well, there you go. very important in the uh, late <laughs> 70s and early 80s because you remember what hair was like back then. That is true. Uh, Robert Thompson from the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Uh, great to have you back on. Thanks for taking the time today. That was fun. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. 
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.